Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen <clears throat> Today we observe the ascension of our Lord. And this holiday, this feast day, has kind of fallen by the wayside in many Christian churches, and sadly even in Lutheran churches. Uh, it's something that's kind of been forgotten uh, in, in recent years. And I hope and pray that the attitude and the attendance toward this day uh, would change. Uh, because this day is as important as Christmas and Easter. It is on the same level as these things. And in fact, they're to be taken together, all of them. Uh, and so I thank God that all of you are here tonight uh, to receive the comfort of the Ascension which I don't know of another feast day uh, that gives as much comfort as this day. Uh, it is such a wonderful and beautiful thing. Um, by the way, as I talk about the Ascension, I want you to know that it's, what, what, the things that I'm saying are not my opinion about the day. It's not like it's my personal favorite holiday or something. And, and I'm not speaking behalf, on behalf of myself or on behalf of the Synod, or on behalf of Luther, or church tradition, or anything like this. In fact, what I am saying about the Ascension, I am speaking on behalf of God. When I talk about the importance of the Ascension, it is God's opinion. That is how He views this. Uh, in fact, we can see this in the Scriptures, according to Holy Scripture. Uh, this day is not an addendum, uh, or a footnote, or some appendix to... The life of Christ. But it is the, the pinnacle, the, the, the homecoming, the, the chief thing in his life. Uh, of course, everything goes together with it. But this, this is a thing that it's all been working towards. It's not just an event, but it is the event, according to Scripture. This is the, the fulfillment of it all. It's the culmination of his birth, of his death, and of his resurrection. Now, just to give you a glimpse of that how highly the, the, the Lord himself views this day. In the Old Testament, I don't know if you can find a book. I mean, there's, it is, the Old Testament is replete with prophecies about the ascension of Christ. You can find psalms on the ascension of Christ, specifically on this day. Um, they were singing about it in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, this is beautiful, and one, one year I'm going to preach on that text. But Daniel chapter 7 is the fullest treatment of the ascension of Christ in the Old Testament. And it's wonderful because it is from the reverse side. So uh, you, you heard Matthew 28, Mark 16, Acts chapter 1. This is the world's view of Christ's ascension, but Daniel chapter 7 is heaven's view of the ascension. It, so when you have time, go and read that. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, the New Testament too. Nearly every single book of the New Testament talks and references the ascension of Christ again. Even more, Jesus himself spoke so highly of his, his own ascension. The reason is not, uh, the, the, the reason to emphasize this day is not because it's important, which it is, but it is important because it is of the greatest comfort for us Christians. 
Um, it is the greatest and deepest consolation. So to prove this and to show you how deep this is, uh, I want to reference and talk about a certain text, uh, a time specifically, which was on Easter morning. The women, remember, went to the tomb. They thought he was dead. They had uh, oils and spices in their hands to anoint Christ's lifeless, dead corpse. That's what they were going there for. And one of those women, um, her name was Mary Magdalene. John chapter 20 says this. It says, Mary stood outside of the tomb and she wept. And as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. Uh, remember, they, the tomb is empty. They thought someone stole the body of Christ. And what did Mary see? She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. She didn't know either because of the great sorrow that blinded her. Her grief and sorrow didn't let her see Jesus or recognize him. Or it could be that Jesus kept her from recognizing him, like he did with the uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? Uh, but Jesus then says this. He says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. I'll go and get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And this is the point I'm getting at. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. See this? Some tr translations, I don't know um, what Bible you have, but some of the translations will say uh, that Jesus said, don't touch me. Uh, it's coming from the word hapto in Greek. This is where we get haptics uh, for, for today, and it's a cognate of that. Um, but that is true in other instances, in other contexts. But in this context, it's the middle voice in grammar. It, is, it, it takes the genitive case. And what that means is it's not simply don't touch me. It means don't hold on to me. Don't cling on. Don't, don't uh, hold tight. Uh, uh, don't hold me tight like this. So the image you should have in mind is not simply that she touches Jesus, but that she's hugging him. She's embracing him with all of her might. She's happy to see him, and she's just embracing him like this. And then Jesus says to that, don't do that. Don't cling to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. So what, what does that mean? How, how does that even follow? What, what's, what, how does that even make sense? Why is it that she can't hold on to him if he hasn't yet gone to the Father, if he hasn't ascended to the Father? Well, there's two points here. First is this, um, Mary is focused on the resurrection. Jesus is focused on his ascension. He's looking already to that. The, the very first words, the very first conversation he has is about his ascension in his resurrection. 
When Jesus was alive, he was telling them oftentimes, I'm, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to resurrect. And he says this, and then that time has come, and now in his resurrection, he's focusing on his ascension. So the first thing on his mind out of the grave is his ascension, and that's how important and significant it is. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Why does Jesus rebuke and correct Mary for clinging to him? Well, something else is going on besides the hug that she gives him. There's something deeper going on here. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what's going on in Mary's heart or in her mind. But we can deduce what's going on in Mary's heart, what her intention is, by Jesus' response and by his reaction to her. So by looking at his response, then we can tell what was in her heart, what her motivation was. Okay, so what is it? If, Jesus rebu- if he rebukes her, if he rebukes anybody, then it's because they were doing wrong. If he corrects you, it's because you were in the wrong. So what, what is it? What is she wrong about? We take Jesus' response to mean this. That Mary must have been holding on to Jesus because she wanted things to go back to the way they were. She was holding on to Jesus because she was holding on to the way things used to be. That he would walk and talk and eat with and dwell and have a home and all of these sort of things uh, in their midst. And Mary thinks Jesus' resurrection is a permanent return to this visible communion, this this visible fellowship and dwelling uh, that she once had with him. And she wanted that closeness again. So Mary wants things to be like they were, and Jesus tells her of the things, of the way that things will be. And the way that things will be are better than the way they were, if you can believe it. The, the life of Jesus, when, when we talk about the life of Christ, uh, there are two stages or states in the life of Christ. We call them the state of his humiliation and the state of exaltation. And this is where his life is divided up into these two states. His state of humiliation is this, that Christ retained, when he became man, when, on Christmas, when he became flesh, and he was born into this world, he was fully God. He did not diminish in divinity. He didn't set it aside. Um, he, he didn't change into man so that he was no longer God, but he remained God, fully God, in that time. But So that means he had all of his power, all of his authority, all of these things. But he refrained from the use of those things, the full use of them. Uh, we, we call this the concealment of his uh, divinity, the non-use of his divinity. And this is a time between his conception, his, his birth, all the way up to his burial. So the Son of God is omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent. And the humiliation, that state of humiliation is his non-use or the refraining of the full use of it. So he takes on the form of a lowly servant. He's despised, he's spit upon, he's mocked, uh, he's beaten, and he's crucified. Uh, he was God fully. And yet he did not appear as God. Now, specifically, his, in his state of humiliation, even though Jesus is God and is omnipresent, 
he in his flesh, he confined himself to be at one place and at one time. And this is a remarkable thing. This is something, we're talking about something that doesn't quite make sense. He made himself to be locally, locally in one specific area. So, for example, if he's in Galilee, then he's in Galilee. Do you see this? And, and that means if he's in Galilee, then he's not in Gethsemane. He can't be there in two places at once. Uh, and if, if he's in Gethsemane, then he's not in the temple. And if he's in the temple, then he's not in Bethany. And if he's in Bethany, he's not in the Jordan River. So it's, he's at one place and at one time. And in fact, we see an example of this in Lazarus's death. If you remember, uh, Mary and Martha were there. It's the same Mary that he talked to uh, on Easter. This is Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary and Martha are there. And Martha is the first one to speak up. And she says, Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died. And then a little bit later, Mary catches him at a different point in time, and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, then my brother would not have died. So they both said it to him. And then verse 14 says this, Jesus himself says to his disciples, he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Do you see? So he's confined himself in one place and at one time. Jesus in his flesh is with Mary and Martha and Lazarus there in time, locally in a state of humiliation. He is at one place and at one time. He travels to places. He walks, which means he can be late to places. Uh, like he was there. He, he wasn't there on time. He wasn't there when Lazarus was taking his final breaths. And so he arrived late. It was four days later. The, the body is already decomposing and rotting. It also means that Jesus can also not be in a place. So he wasn't there. That is the, that is the state that Mary was clinging to, was his state of humiliation where he has one local presence there. He is there, he travels over here, and it takes time. That is why Jesus rebukes her and says, don't cling to me. Why? Because in his ascension, he will be with her, not in his state of humiliation, but in his state of exaltation. And this is far, far greater. Because Christ is not confined to one place at one time. He is not confined to heaven. He's not stuck in heaven. He's not circumscribed to one place and at one time and that it takes him time to travel from one place to another as if he has to go from one church to another, bounce all around these places. That, that's, not, that's not it. That would be true if he was in his state of humiliation, but he is in his state of exaltation, which is entirely different. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10 puts it this way. It says, Christ ascended far above all heavens, far beyond space and time and all things. He ascended far beyond, uh, above all heavens so that he might fill all things. <laughs> and what is it talking about? Um, Part of Jesus would fill all things? No, that he, the full Christ, Christ, in his, the very flesh that he had, 
the, the very uh, flesh that he was born with, that that would fill all things. So that there's not a place that, that he can't go, that he can't be at a time. And that there is the most beautiful thing and the greatest consolation in the world. Because Mary has one thing in mind and Jesus has something greater in mind. When he says to Mary, don't cling to me, it's as if he's saying, Mary, don't worry because I am going to be with you. It's not going to be like before. I won't be late to things. <laughs> I won't have to travel. And you don't have to wait for me anymore, ever again. I won't refrain myself from any power, uh, from, from exercising any power. I will take up the full use of my power, of my knowledge, and my presence. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I will do what with all of that power? He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing will separate us. And in fact, I will be closer to you than I've ever been to you before. I will be closer than your arms can hold, you, uh, hold me to you. Holding me with all of your might is still too far of a distance between us. So don't cling to me. Because this embrace is not as close as we will be when I'm ascended. That's what he's saying. The point of Christ's ascension is that he would fill all things. That is his state of exaltation. He fills the entire universe with his almighty presence. And it is the full Christ, not in parts, not just the divinity of Christ, but Christ, the, 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 the God who became incarnate, who took on flesh. There, there is nothing that is impossible for him. There's nothing he cannot do in his flesh. There's nothing he himself cannot do. And in fact, uh, he has promised to be not only with us in, in everywhere and every place and at every time, but also specifically with his dear church. He says it this way, just a few verses. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, my father and I, will come to him and make our home with him. We'll dwell in you. He also says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's simultaneously throughout the world. This night, this very night, there are churches all around the world observing the, the ascension of our Lord, and our Lord is at every single one of those churches right now as we speak. He also says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the disciples knew this. They rejoiced. They weren't sad at his ascension. They worshipped him. And the scripture says they returned to Jerusalem with exceedingly great joy. They knew he didn't leave. 
They knew he didn't go away. He was closer to them than he had ever been before. If the disciples had exceedingly great joy on this day, then we should too. Jesus is closer to us now than he was to, to, to Mary Magdalene when she was hugging him. He is closer to us now than he was even to his own dear mother, Mary. He is closer to us now than he was to his own mother when he was in her womb. Because here he comes to us in this specific way. He says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. So, dear saints, this means, this is, if you distill the entire sermon, if you can only take one thing away, then take this, that there is no place in this world that you can go that your dear Lord will not go with you. There's no place. There's no place in this veil of tears that you can go, that you will go alone. When you go into the doctor's office alone and you hear your diagnosis, Jesus himself is there with you. And when you go into surgery and you're put uh, under the knife and your mind is gone, Jesus is there with you. And when you're weeping and mourning in loneliness and despair, he is there with you. You could be the last person standing on the face of this planet. It could be drowning in fire, flooded in fire, and you're the last surviving person, and Jesus still says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and at any point know that he is still with you. You fear nothing. Why? Because you are with me. You, you can sink to the greatest depths, be drowning in your own trouble, in your sin, and in your guilt, and still know that he will be there with you. You can feel the guiltiest you've ever been, and he will not forsake you even then. There is no place too low for your dear Lord. He descended to depths way deeper than, than you ever could, could dream of, than you could, be, than you could imagine. And whenever that last hour comes, when your last hour comes, when you're gasping for your final breath, when you're surrounded by nothing, completely alone, you are never alone. Because Jesus will be there with you. Never leaving you for a second, never slumbering or sleeping, but guarding your coming in and your going out forevermore. And he will be closer to you than anyone has ever been in this life, embracing you in his crucified arms, holding you in his nail-pierced hands. Not only will he be there, he will be there for you. He will be there for your sake and for your benefit. He is with you. And when he's with you, he is constantly covering you with his righteousness. He's clothing you with his innocence. He's protecting you from every attack and sin and doubt and despair with his holy and precious blood. There, Jesus is with you. He was with you when you were in the womb, when you were small and helpless, when you were carried to the font. And you couldn't speak or do a thing for yourself. And he is with you now in his flesh and blood. And he will be with you when you're helpless once again. 
Now, your dear Lord is with you, but soon you will be with him. You will be where he is and where all those who have died in Christ are. You will be in that blessed company and in that place where your dear Father is and all the host of heaven. And when you close your eyes in death, that is when your eyes will be opened to see the face of your Father who loves you, who gave Christ his only begotten Son for you, who spared nothing for you for your sake. Hear the words of this hymn. A little while, my Jesus said, and I will take thee to me. As, as I for thee my blood have shed, so do I love thee truly. Yea, every tear that thou hast wept, I have within my bottle kept, and I am coming quickly. Thou art my own, my Jesus said, and as I live so surely, all mine is thine, so have no dread. Thy flesh will dwell securely. Thy daily bread I will provide, and even death cannot divide thee from my loving kindness. Amen, Lord Jesus, on thy palms I know thou hast engraved me. Forevermore I'll sing these songs and tell how thou hast saved me. In death thou art my confidence, in life art my inheritance, in thee my soul rejoices. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Alleluia.